The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you have experienced narcissistic abuse, you are in the right place. Our mission is to help you understand the abuse you have experienced, support you through your healing journey, and to help you develop healthy relationships. I am your host, Juliana Aiken, and in today's episode, I'm interviewing Jessica Haas. Jessica is a therapist who focuses on adults who need education and or support to understand how emotional neglect, narcissistic abuse, and psychological slash emotional abuse have affected their self-image, relationships, choices in partners and friends, and behavioral patterns. She works with clients who have experienced CPTSD, which develops in response to long-term trauma, abuse, and or emotional neglect. She can also help those trying to figure out if they are in a relationship with a narcissist or wanting to learn healthier boundaries to better manage their relationship in any capacity with loved ones demonstrating narcissistic traits. In this episode, Jessica offers five practical strategies to help you gradually overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes. Let's get started. Before I go into those five points and strategies, I kind of just wanted to give a synopsis of the types of narcissistic abuse we'll be addressing. I also call it psychological abuse because not everybody that has narcissistic traits and is abusive is a narcissist, right? So psychological trauma and abuse fall in line with narcissistic abuse. Um, not every abuser is a narcissist, not, but, but all abusers are um, have those narcissistic traits, right? Considering narcissism is on the rise, um, one in 10 people starting in their 20s in our society today have narcissistic traits versus one in 30 of people ages 64 and older. So there's a lot of reasons more and more narcissists are being um, conditioned. Uh, You know, there's arguments about nature versus nurture. I think both can be true, but it's definitely kind of an an epidemic. It's a rising population. So we're definitely going to be dealing with these sorts of folks much more in our lives. And they can come in the forms of family, intimate partners, bosses, friends, um, pretty much anybody, right? And they, they can affect us in different ways. So anyway, that's why I think it's important to have these strategies in mind, because you just never know when you're going to need them. Um, so I, in talking about powerlessness and, and losing our power to these narcissists, they take our power because they have none, right. Or they perceive they have none. Um, you know, they, they have poor sense of self and, um, very fragile egos. So when they see somebody they can latch onto like a vampire and suck the power from them, that's what they do. Um, and so, I just kind of wanted to outline what power really is. And power to me as as an individual is my ability to self-advocate, my ability to um, persevere and preserve myself, you know, protect myself in a lot of ways, um, uh, achieve, you know, be the best version of myself that I can be. So when I don't have those things, I suffer. And so I I become a shell of a person. I'm definitely not who I could be if that person had not come into my life and sucked my power away. Um, So just to kind of go into all of that. And and again, it could come in many, many, many forms and very subtly or very obviously. 
And it's the subtle ones that we have to be a little bit more aware of. So, um, so other ways they can take our power is, you know, the, the typical, what they call gaslighting. So the psychological trauma associated with the self-doubt and questioning ourselves and our judgment, um, reality. So when we walk through life, not trusting our own judgment, how do we know what clothes to pick out for ourselves, or what decisions are best made for ourselves or how do we vet people now moving forward after we've kind of had this power taken away from us? Cause now we're really hypervigilant about everybody that comes in our lives. Um, and you know, that the effects of the drug, right? The, the dopamine effect. So when that power is taken away, we're constantly craving more power. And so the way we crave that from these narcissistic abusers or these psychological abusers is we constantly seek their validation and adoration and attention and affection, right? So if we have that, we feel somewhat powerful again, um, even though it's a false sense of power. But if we don't have that, we're constantly seeking ways to get it. Um, so that's why it's so um, insidious and uh, addictive. So the first one, and I don't necessarily have these in any particular order, because again, it's a journey unique to everybody. Um, but maintaining rigid boundaries is what I always coach my clients to do. Um, whether you're actively engaged in a relationship with an abuser like this, or you, it's a former, a person you've decided to cut out of your life, or they've decided to cut you out. Um, either way, you want to maintain those rigid boundaries. So what that looks like is if the person still exists in your life, and oftentimes they think of this as like a family member, right? Because we can't just, well, we can cut our family members out, but it's very difficult. Um, and very intertwined. And um, oftentimes our relationships with them are unmeshed. So it limits, our, it's a, a huge barrier to having those rigid boundaries. But what that looks like in terms of like a, a person that isn't necessarily easy to get rid of, in a sense, um, you have to take inventory of ways that your personal boundaries are constantly being violated by this person or these people and readjust your perception of how that boundary should look. So in other words, if um, abuse an abusive parent, you know, maybe they send emails every once in a while that they send articles about lifestyle choices, and it's obviously in relationship to something you're doing in life that they're not in approval of. Um, maybe you block them, right? So there's a rigid boundary, um, and whether or not you tell the person you're doing that is up to you in the in the situation. But that would be an example of one. Um, not having people visit during holidays or or limiting your contact with people generally. So that would be another very rigid boundary. And these have to be very specific and you have to be very calculated and con consistent. Otherwise, if the narcissist sees a, a chink in the armor and they and you happen to respond to a text that you had otherwise said, I'm not going to respond to these texts. These are done. If I see her send this sort of message, I'm just not going to respond. And then one time you're maybe a little bit more vulnerable and you do. That person is going to see that 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 weak link and think, oh, I got them back. So so that that avenue for manipulation is opened up again. And the minute they get back into your ear, in a sense, then the cycle that will most likely continue. Right. So so being rigid in your boundaries is just trying to stop these cycles, these emotional patterns and these abusive cycles because it's a form of self-preservation. When we grow up in homes or environments or we've been conditioned in our relationships, even in adulthood, to lower our boundaries because, well, we weren't engendered with self-advocacy to begin with. We weren't taught healthy, appropriate boundaries. 
we were, our boundaries were mowed over by somebody or people. So we just think that's how relationships work. And I therefore don't have the tools or the skills necessary to have healthy boundaries. Um, it's like a, you're, you're ill-equipped to protect yourself. So, you know, teaching my clients how to have rigid boundaries, it seems so counterintuitive to them, but it's absolutely necessary. Um, and it's just helping them understand how, how they're responsible for their own health and well-being. And sometimes that means hurting the feelings of others or betraying somebody that's made them feel like they're responsible for their feelings. So they shouldn't betray because then they're hurting them, even though they're actually the abuser. Um, so over time, these rigid boundaries will transform into more flexible boundaries, but, but more consistent boundaries. So the person, it will become second nature to them. In other words, if it's going to be a long learning curve, perhaps, but they'll get more accustomed and used to, um, knowing what's appropriate and healthy and what's not. Um, and a part of knowing that is knowing your vulnerability. So being really self-aware of what boundaries you allow people to consistently cross. So you can always have those present of mind and kind of constantly refresh yourself. Oh yeah, I shouldn't let people do this. That's right. And kind of resetting how you approach things. Cause you know, it's really hard to break a pattern, right. Or, a, or, um, a habit. And so that, that kind of becomes a habit when you don't protect yourself and set appropriate, healthy boundaries. Um, and I think that really is it in a nutshell, what, what I, how I would describe maintaining and setting rigid boundaries, but along with knowing your vulnerabilities, know the triggers. So guilt and shame, right? So these are the sorts of emotions that narcissists can't, they can't absorb, they can't feel, they can't confront. So these are the things they reflect back onto us and project onto us. So when that guilt and shame primarily is triggered, I think that's a really obvious sign, you know, that you're uh, at risk of exposing yourself to further harm. And that's when you really have to tighten up and be rigid. Mm, yeah, thank you so much. So you said that one strategy to overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes is to maintain, uh, set and maintain rigid boundaries. So, and you started with like how to do this in practice. And this is what I at least understood from, from you that do an inventory of, uh, about your right now current personal boundaries and how they are being violated and then look at them and think about okay how things should be like like what would be the like situation you would want to find yourself in where your personal boundaries aren't violated and then you gave an example this could look like no contact or limit contact and that would be a very rigid boundary then you in general talked about kind of learning about boundaries and how to set them and then you mentioned like knowing your vulnerabilities and triggers as well because this often relates to the fact that if we are not, for example, um, aware of our triggers or vulnerabilities, we might kind of slip and, and, uh, you know, our boundaries are being violated if we are not like, um, paying attention to our vulnerabilities and triggers. So I have like two questions. One is, let's say, what if, because you said something like, okay, know your vulnerability, know your vulnerabilities and reset how you approach that. You said something like that. So what if my vulnerability is people pleasing? Like I, I know that's my vulnerability. I want to make sure that people around me are 
feeling great and sometimes or the pattern in my life has been that I do it at the expense of my own health and well-being if that's your vulnerability what do you mean that reset how you approach then this first strategy of maintained rigid boundaries or can you just give a very concrete example if this is the vulnerability yeah and and I was going to bring up people pleasing as a caveat so people pleasing it, it's a conditioned response right um I think it far much more affects women than men just because of the way we're raised in our in different societies. Um, so it's not like someone that's been conditioned to want to people please and protect other people's emotions um, can just automatically decide to say, screw that, I'm going to do something different, right? It takes practice. So really what you want to be aware of is one, that you are a people pleaser. So that, that self-awareness, okay, I'm aware and I own this, doesn't mean I can change it overnight or possibly at all, depending on my level of commitment and my barriers. Um, but just that awareness alone is paramount. Once you have that, you start to take notice of when you're typically triggered to people, please. And it's those relationships that really are, um, I don't want to say they're necessarily abusive. We have a lot of relationships where we, you know, like our spouses, if we're in a healthy, loving relationship, for example, we want to please our spouse. We want to make them happy. I want to cook them dinner when they've had a long day, even though I might've had a long day and things like that. Um, but it's when you feel like your emotional efforts and your level of protection far surpasses the benefit you're receiving from that other person. So, so when you notice those types of relationships in your life and you think, oh, wow, I really do feel like I'm on pins and needles around this person and I'm constantly worried about their mental and uh, emotional well-being and I constantly feel like I'm responsible for, for helping them maintain some sort of level of that, that's when you know it's probably not healthy. It's probably not a healthy dynamic. It's not symbiotic because you're not getting back what you're putting in, right? So there's no balance. Um, so the, I would say that's kind of where you should start. What relationship or relationships in your life do you notice the people pleasing being triggered most often and in what ways? And then maybe pick one one day a week to really focus on that and, and re kind of configure your response to one of their requests or one of your urges to help them in some way. Um, Cause it is, it's going to be very incremental and typically through therapeutic support, it's best achieved, but you can also achieve it as an individual, as long as you keep that, that process in mind and just maintain that awareness with the commitment to absolutely. I want to change this. You know, this is like somebody that wants to lose 50 pounds. If you want to lose 50 pounds, it's going to take a lot of work and effort. So you have to be committed to that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerabilities that go into that, but I think it's absolutely possible for someone with that vulnerability to change it. Mm, okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for that example. And then kind of what, why did you include this maintaining rigid, setting and maintaining rigid boundaries as one of the strategies when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness? So I'm looking for why this works so well when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness. Because saying no and not doing things that you otherwise would is very empowering. So again, as women, I'm speaking from a woman's perspective, so I hope I don't rule out the men because they everyone deals with this sort of thing. Um, there's no, it's not gender specific, but but we we are we're just not taught that saying no is okay. I don't think that that's something that in our schools and our um, family dynamics is often encouraged or engendered. So. I just feel like the, the ability to say no to something and feel like I could take it or leave it, or I don't care if they're mad. You know, I said something, maybe it, it wasn't meant to be offensive, but somebody took it as offensive. Well, you know, 
I give myself permission to say what I said. I don't need someone else's permission. So, so setting those rigid boundaries, because really when you've been conditioned in this way to be a people pleaser or, you know, to have this sort of abuse enter your life to begin with and then tolerate it tells me you have poor boundaries. You have porous boundaries and poor boundaries in a lot of different ways, emotionally, physically, maybe sexually. So um, the only way to really gain that power back is by learning what your standards are and what you're willing and not willing to put up with. Mm, yeah, thank you so much. So when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes, the first strategy we have now talked about was to maintain rigid boundaries. So what is the next or second strategy? So this is something I personally do with my clients. This is something I've personally done in my own life. Um, is challenge idealization and adoration of the false self that that narcissist presents, presents to you. So I think no matter what type of relationship dynamic we are in with these sorts of narcissistic people, um, we idolize them. We place them on this pedestal because really they've placed themselves there in our mind, right? Even though they absolutely do not warrant that level of power and adoration, we've been conditioned to see it that way because they, you know, they shower us with affection and, and compliment us, or they've enmeshed us in their emotions to the point that their identity is now our identity. So we, we kind of have that confusion as to how to see them as a separate individual and for the who, who and what they really are. Um, so this is typically what I see in romantic relationships, but it can also happen in other dynamics too, um, where, you know, a, 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 an abuser says something or does something to us that absolutely breaks our boundaries, disrespects us, demoralizes us, and um, is, is abhorrent. But yet we excuse it because we bring them, like their, their memory in our minds is of their best self. Like, oh, but they're, they're really good at this, or they did that nice thing last week, or oh, I, should, I should feel bad because, you know, they had a bad childhood or whatever the case. So really breaking down and reconstructing how you envision the, the person in your life that's causing you this distress, the abuser, um, is absolutely necessary, but it takes a lot of mental jujitsu. It's not easy to do. Um, that you, you, your brain wants to hold on to that sense of who they are because that, that sense of who they are has been a, a false sense of safety for you. Oh, as long as they're there, I'll feel safe. Or there's my dopamine that I can get from them. So if I lose that, how am I going to get that dopamine rush again? Um, cause only they can provide it in the way that they do or whatever. I mean, that's something we may not think consciously, but subconsciously that's going on. Right. So really our goal when it comes to, well, this is in the case of, of abusive situations where you don't want the person in your life or they've discarded you, right? Um, either way, once you, you've exited those, those relationships, we want a sense of apathy. We don't want anger to persist. We, maybe a level of anger is healthy in the beginning. And I'll, I can talk about that later, but um, apathy. So we just kind of want to know they exist and acknowledge that they existed in our lives and the role they played and how they maybe helped us develop because yeah, there is a silver lining, right? Um, at times, but ultimately we want to transform their, their, um, image in our minds of them as something not that special. Like, who are they? How, how did they get to become so powerful in my mind? Um, and, and where did that stem from? Because it's, it's not stemmed in reality. 
because it's not really who they are, right? So um, that that idealization devaluation that they do to us, when they idealize us, that's that image we keep and we hold on to because that's what feels safe and makes us happy in a sense, right? So we have to really pull in those moments where they devalue us. And it's kind of like a pendulum swinging. When my brain wants that dopamine kick and wants to go back towards them as the ideal self, I got to swing it back. I got to manually do that, right? Because it's not easy. It's not um, obvious to my brain that, that that's what should be done. So it takes that cognitive work, which is that you know CBT and things like that, cognitive behavioral therapy, to reframe how we see them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I encourage, I mean, clients come up with all different kinds of ways to reconceptualize their abusers, but you know, it could be something akin to a monster or, um, you know, maybe nicknames, like, I mean, not to demoralize them or make fun of them, but really knock them off their pedestal, take them down a few pegs because they don't deserve to be on that, um, in, on that level in your mind. Um, because by the way, the higher they are in your mind, the lower you are in your mind. So their shadows just overcasting anything about yourself, which is their goal, right? Um, so you have to bring yourself out of that, their shadow by kind of lowering them and it doesn't have to be below you, but you know, make it realistic, um, at least. So, um, on top of that, you know, in, in, in terms of teaching apathy and like, Hey, let's get you to a point where this person's presence in your life, you could take or leave. Um, we really have to, help people. I mean, it, you should be holding on to some anger. And I say that because that self-advocacy doesn't exist without a little bit of anger. Um, in fact, we go back to the, the poor boundaries. So if you become a doormat, right, and you have no self-advocacy and you forget entirely how to take care of yourself and what your needs are, um, you're probably not going to be a very, um, your emotions aren't going to be very, I don't know the right word, but you're, that anger is going to probably be diminished quite a bit because you're kind of just deflated. You're just like, ugh, I'm too tired. I'm emotionally exhausted. I don't have the fight in me. I'm sick of fighting. So I'm just going to let things happen. So I try to engender some of that anger, but in the form of self-advocacy, right? Get angry for yourself. Um, and, and that usually does help a little bit to bring people to a sense of reality about what the situation is and why they're in it and what has happened to them as a result. Um, but holding a grudge is different because what, if you hold that grudge and you, you see, and you no longer adore or admire the abuser, but now you're really pissed off at him and you maybe, you know, wish ill will or whatever the case, that's also equally unhealthy because they're still holding on to some level of power over you. Right. So getting to a point of radical acceptance where you accept this person is who they are. This is what they did. This is the role they played. And now I control what they are into me in my life and how they affect me. Um, so it, it's a lot of cognitive work, but um, I think the more somebody implements that in their off time, you know, they can come to session with me and I can sit there for the hour and help them reconceptualize, but they've really got to do that work on their own because those thoughts of that abuser are going to constantly be present depending on how much th their presence is in, in your life. Um, it could be every day. It could be once a week, but I promise you that person is insidiously present in your mind because every time shame or guilt is triggered, you're going to think of something they said or did probably that engendered that shame and guilt. Right. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. I would want to know more about kind of, uh, about how to see them more realistically. Like you said, like we need to knock them out of the, of their pedestal because they are actual, like that's not, 
realistic view of them, but we often idealize them. So I want to know more about that. Can you share on top of your head, let's say, three ways that someone can do that on their own? So something you said, this is a lot of cognitive, cognitive work. So three ideas that someone can do to, you know, help themselves to see the abuser or narcissist more realistically and uh also i feel like this is tied to the radical acceptance as well so yeah i, I would like to know more about this um okay so three i'll try my best but i can think of one right off the top of my head um so when we have an abuser who I want to say is kind of like a martyr. It doesn't have to be a female figure necessarily, but it's someone who somehow triggers sympathy or sadness. Like you, you kind of sympathize with that person, even though they might treat you terribly, you know, they have some sort of history where they were abused or you saw them get abused. Like, let's say it's a parental figure. Um, you were there during the abuse. You see their vulnerabilities and, you know, even narcissists have them, right? In fact, they have more than most. It's just, they're, they're harder to see and detect. Um, so, a person can negate their, it can make it very difficult for someone to conceptualize someone as anything, but what they've already conceptualized them as if they, if they have that barrier where I can't see this person, but anything but a victim. And, um, I feel bad for them because they have no friends and they, you know, they always remember my birthday or whatever the case. Um, so tearing down the excuses because there is no excuse for abuse, right? Um, if that person had abuse in their history and you think that's contributed to their current behavior and their current characteristics or traits, um, okay, well, a lot of people go through those things and still don't abuse others, right? So really kind of um, poking holes in those false arguments because it is a false argument. That argument is derived to protect that abuser because that's what they've conditioned you to do. Um, or naturally you've been conditioned in other ways, but it pertains to them because they have that sort of um, dynamic in their relationship with you. Um, another example would be um, when when an abuser projects this this false sense of self and so you see this person as mighty or mentally strong or physically strong or you know really um successful they have this really good career so we latch on to those reasons because it it gives us an excuse to stay um and not discard this person even though we know they're harmful to us because whatever benefit we're getting which is typically that dopamine rush right um it's, it's, it's preventing us from really seeing the reality of it. It's kind of like delusional, right? Um, you know, when you hear you hear people say, Oh, I can't believe they're in that relationship. They should get out that that person doesn't treat them well at all. Well, that person doesn't see that what they see is that ideal false sense of self that that other person's projecting. And that's, and it's like rose colored glasses, right? So, um, like I said, kind of not, not being demoralizing or like a, you know, a bully in a sense, but kind of really playing on those, narcissists undesirables um like maybe they they don't have good hygiene or maybe they you know don't have friends you know look at the reality of what this person represents because it's not what you're pinpointing it's way more broad than that um so 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 not discarding the things that um that are undesirable because that's what we do we only look at really the desirable Mm, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So uh, in order to see them more realistically, it would be ta first you said, like, take away all the excuses that you have heard, of, like all those victim sob stories and all of that, because yeah, you, you're right, like abuses 
there's never excuse for that and then also like really uh like when you understand that you have an idealized image of them try to look at the whole picture so it's not only that they're traits or characteristics that make them successful or that they are so good at something or they are so whatever fill in the blank but actually look at them like as a whole person what are the kind of problematic traits or things they have done or said and are part of them so you can get a more realistic picture of, of the person so yeah thank you so much um yeah final question about this so this was the strategy number two in order to overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes. You said that, like, challenge the idealized version, version the narcissist has portrayed to you. Why do you think, why did you include this? Why do you think this is so effective when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness? Because that's part of the psychological trauma. Um, and it's, it's very, it's the most insidious thing I think of that psychological trauma induces is our inability to decipher reality from the image that we've contrived or that they've contrived for us. Um, it's not obvious. It's not apparent. It's not tangible. Um, you know, emotional abuse and psychological abuse in general aren't, but I think that what keeps us coming back to these people is that image that we've placed in our minds of them. Um, because that's the thing we hold on to the most. Um, and because we're not used to, you know, focusing on our own emotional needs. Right. So, um, it's so easy to displace what's really happened because all of what's really happened has been towards us. And as individuals, if we have poor boundaries and poor self-advocacy and a poor self-image and self-esteem, um, all we want is that ideal person to want us and accept us. And, and even if it's not like an intimate partner, if it's a parent or a sibling or boss, all the, all the accolades they give us, even if it's once in a blue moon and the rest is terrible and abhorrent, we latch on to that one compliment they gave. Or, and so, so that, that image that we have of them overrides any sense of reality. And because imagery is so powerful, um, I, ju I just think that that's something that you have to overcome in order to get, to see the reality of the situation and move on from the abuse and the abuser. Mm, yeah. Thank you. That was very clear and great explanation. So when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes, the first strategy you gave today was uh, maintain rigid boundaries. The second one was to challenge the idealized version the narcissist has portrayed to you. What is the third one? So the third one is engaging in empowering activities. Um, and this is more of a generic one that I think I found a lot of online, but I think it's also very important because Okay. In, in addition to all these, this cognitive work that I've already kind of outlined, um, we have to be physically engaged in empowering ourselves as well. So resetting how we see ourselves and getting reinforcement and support to, to advocate for who we, we are actually and who we want to be. So surrounding ourselves with supportive folks or just folks that you know, aren't negative and, and don't want to bash us all the time. And then while we can exercise our I guess, uh, strengths. Um, so that could be in a the forms of a lot of different things. I would say definitely activities that are autonomous. So you do them maybe without friends, like you just kind of go join a dance class or you go join a Pilates class or whatever, um, just to kind of expose yourself to whatever scrutiny you might be afraid of, of getting, because, Hey, you, you might be, a, you might be the lowest you've ever felt about yourself at this point, exiting some sort of relationship like this. So 
what can you do, even if it's baby steps to expose yourself to situations and people where you start to learn through those experiences that you're not so bad and you're not as dumb as you thought, or you're not as, you know, um, you're, you're more outgoing than you thought or whatever the case, whatever, whatever, you know, uh, criticisms you were used to hearing, you, you actively engage in activities that work to dispel those. Um, because this is your, another way of you taking your power back by saying, Hey, I'm none of those things. Look, I, I can do this. Or I, I did that. Um, even though you were maybe discouraged that you couldn't, um, or told that you couldn't, or you didn't even want to try because you thought, why I'm going to fail or whatever the case, um, that could be, it could be in academics, uh, getting education in some way. It could be just joining a, a support group. It could be, you know, there's narcissistic support groups that you could join or narcissistic abuse support survivor groups in a variety of capacities. Um, where you just kind of hear other people's stories and you realize, oh, I know what they're talking about. And um, narcissistic abuse isn't something a lot of people expose to others. You know, they don't want to tarnish the reputation or make other people in their lives view the abuser in a negative way. Because for one, it's embarrassing, right? Like, oh, they know that this person treats me this way, yet they still see me engage with them or, or you know, hang around them or whatever the case so it's a very isolated feeling. So when you expose yourself to people that have been a part of those sorts of relationships and have experienced some of that abuse, it is so empowering to know that you're not alone and it's okay to talk about it because, you know, the narcissist, his biggest fear, I should say his, his or her biggest fear is that their true self is exposed and you're the only one that really knows their true self, right? Typically, I mean, abusers can affect many different people at once, but they, they latch on and highlight to one one or two primary people, um, at a time. So, um, and the other thing is that when we talk about that pedestal and the, the superiority and the inferiority, so your sense of inferiority, which is something we typically are conditioned to feel at a certain stage of our development, right? Between the ages of five and 12. So if we grew up in a house where we're not really praised a lot, or we're not like encouraged to join an activity or a sport or a mu play a musical instrument, things like that. We're never really, we're never fully engendered with that sense of self-acceptance and I can do this. Like I can be superior at things. I can do well at things. Um, so you're already kind of given a, a, a setback in life if that's something you missed in during your development. But even if you got some of that in your development and you enter a relationship with someone who knocks all that down, you have to build that sense of superiority back up. And we never want to be superior in the sense we're better than people, but we want to know that we're good, bottom line, and we're going to be good at things we try because we know we can, we're capable, right? So testing our boundaries and, and our inferiorities and in, in exposing ourselves to activities that really challenge us in that way is a, a really effective way of of rebuilding ourselves into who we want to be or maybe who we once were or have always been but we kind of lost a sense of who that person was um, and so that's a gradual exposure um, and, it, and it's really really challenging because a lot you know if you're an introvert by nature and that's okay exposing yourself to these sorts of social or or um, challenging activities can be very intimidating but I think with the damage that has been done in many cases, in most cases, that you have to go above and beyond and try those sorts of things to really get 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 a, a sense of yourself back, for sure. So it might be counterintuitive, but I think I, I highly recommend that. I recommend taking a trip by yourself. You know, um, I do this to client, and I've done it myself. I I didn't do my first trip by alone until I was in my 30s, and I thought, why haven't I done this my whole life? Um, but I think it's so empowering to 
say, you know what, I'm going to build an itinerary of a place I've always wanted to go. And I'm just going to go do it. And granted there's safety and all that involved, but if you can trust yourself to be safe and make good judgments in that way, then it is, it is the most freeing sort. You don't have to worry about collaborating with anyone or getting approval. Oh, is this activity okay? Or is, is this meal okay? Or whatever. And it's just so awesome. It's an awesome feeling. So that would be an a, a, a example of an engaging, of engaging in an empowering activity. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, then, so we have been talking about how to overcome the powerlessness and the first strategy you shared was the main energy boundaries. Second one was challenge the idealized, idealized version, uh, the narcissist has portrayed to you. Third one was engage in empowering activities. So yeah, what else do you have? What is the fourth one? So the fourth one is, is becoming focused on your future. Um, the power that's been taken from us causes us to kind of live in the moment. And then once we don't have that, that narcissist in our lives that we constantly get our, our dopamine rushes from, we tend to look at the past because we miss it. Even though it was abusive and unhealthy, we miss it. Um, it was what we were used to. It we felt safe so to speak. And uh, so now we're not used to focusing on our future or ourselves. So how do we, when we're, when we're left kind of like, okay, we've placed rigid boundaries or we've decided to discard the abuser or they've discarded us either way. Now we have more time to focus on us. So how do I do that? If I've never really been encouraged to do that. Um, and so training yourself to think about your future is like a concept to some people that they're just not used to, to thinking about. Um, and again, it goes back to that, that stage of development where it's like, what are you, what are you capable of? What are you good at? What are your strengths? How do you identify those and, and use those as tools to give yourself a better life moving forward? And so, um, you know, this is a, another conceptualization that people that have been through psychological trauma often struggle with because they were never taught how to do that. So um, putting our needs first is really hard for people that are not used to doing that. It's kind of like when you're not used to getting compliments, right? And somebody compliments you and you're like, oh, stop. No, I don't deserve that. Like I do that all the time. It's annoying. It's super annoying. But the reason people do that is because they're not used to it. So if I'm not used to focusing on me and my needs, how do I learn to do that? So it's really just kind of like, um, like a solution focused sort of approach to yourself. Like what are my goals and how do I get there? And, uh, now I have no one else to think about, but myself in terms of who structures my future. Um, and that may not always be the case, but exiting or, or setting up this sort of life where you have these better boundaries in place allows you more time to think about that. Um, so you have to use a lot of your awareness that you've hopefully developed, you know, of your vulnerabilities, of your strengths, of, um, the sense of who you are and who you want to be to, to create those sorts of goals in life. Um, and they really have to be person centered, you know, what do I want aside from what anybody else wants? Because, you know, even kids, you know, or kids, people that grow up in homes where they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, uh, what they consider a high achiever, but you just want to, I don't know, be a blogger or whatever. You have to really be able to give yourself permission to, say, I'm going to do whatever, what I want to do, regardless of what, what anyone says, because that's that, that rigid boundary. I'm going to learn to say no, right? My rigid boundary is that I'm not going to let other people get into my brain and convince me that I don't know what I want or that I, what I want isn't good for me. So focusing on future, it sounds so maybe commonplace or like 
duh to some people, but not to people who've never been told they can choose what they want in their future. And the world is their oyster. So start thinking about it. Um, they're kind of more stuck in survival mode when they're in those relationships, right? Like, how do I get past this conversation? How do I get through this day? How do I avoid a fight or a conflict? Um, how do I not make this person upset with me? So when we're stuck in survival mode and living in the moment all the time, we're not focused on the future. Maybe we're focused on the next day at best, but we're not focused a week, a month, a year down the road. So, um, it, it's just a whole new concept for people. And it's, it's very, um, empowering to know that you have all those options. Um, and you can say no to some of them if you want to, as well as yes. Um, I think, I think that's pretty much the gist of that, but in order to heal, you should, you should constantly going back to that cognitive reframing, the pendulum wants to swing to the past and what you miss about such and such, or, Oh, you wish this could still be the case. You've got to learn to swing that pendulum manually back to the reframing of that was the past. What do I have looking to look forward to? I create what I look forward to. Um, that person, my thoughts pulling me to the past of that person uh, means that their chains are still wrapped around me. They're still controlling me. Um, and that's easier said than done. I can't just say that and be like, oh, well, I'll just release their control. But it helps you control your thoughts because you're aware that your thoughts are going to them, right? Versus just that naturally happening and you don't really think twice about it. Or you get stuck in those emotional patterns and, and cycles of, oh, it feels good to think about them. So I'm going to continue to do that because it's giving me that dopamine rush. Um, I would say too, with the future, I, I tell clients when they come in, it, come into therapy and it's either, you know, they're in a current abusive relationship with a narcissist or they had childhood trauma associated with narcissistic abuse. I tell them they have to mourn the person they were because you are going to change as a result of getting these sorts of folks out of your life or placing better boundaries. And so what does that look like to mourn? Well, acknowledging that you have made mistakes, that you give yourself um, permission to have made those mistakes and permission to make mistakes moving forward. But that person doesn't exist anymore or a, a part of you does exist, but that, that person is going to be reshaped and you're going to be the person to reshape it. You yourself are going to choose how you reshape. So really kind of just, it's kind of like that, the, when people create new names for themselves, they have the, the, the death, the dead name or whatever they call it. So this is the dead version of yourself because you are going to actively make sure that you change in a positive way, but to acknowledge that you come from where you come from and that's okay. Mm, okay, yeah, thank you. This was really great. So uh, you started, you kind of labeled this as become focused on your future. And then you uh, gave a lot of good information. And I, uh, I wrote down to my notes that you said, like, one kind of uh, how to do this in practice was think about what are your goals and how we can get there. So get really like problem solving approach into this and very simple. And then the second thing you said also, you just said it that you also might have to mourn the person you once were. So acknowledging that, yeah, I haven't made some mistake and mistakes and, but now because I'm going to focus on my future and that's what's the past, I'm going to kind of reshape myself, even though that past and the mistakes there, it might be still part of me, but I'm going to reshape myself and commit myself into positive changes in the present that lead into better future. So, yeah, I, th I think those were really good ones. So I'm thinking 
again the same question why did you include this why do you think that becoming focuses focused on our future help us to overcome the feeling of powerlessness that we often have because of narcissistic abuse because i think our sense of autonomy and choice is robbed of us when we are in a relationship or we have someone present in our lives who feels like we have limited options. Um, like for example, I had a client who, um, her husband wouldn't let her pick the scent of candle that she wanted. He, she had to pick the one he liked. So something as minuscule as that, right? So it seems petty and, and kind of insignificant, but it's paramount because when somebody is no longer engaged with a person like that abusive and limits their choice in life that much, they, they're like oh, 10 million windows open up. Right. So I think future focused is, uh, is a person's manifestation of them ultimately having every choice available to them outside of anyone else's approval. It's like, you're kind of like treated like a child, right? You're infantilized by these people in your lives who don't have a lot of, or don't want you to feel good and, and empowered about yourself. So they make you feel like you don't have choice or, oh, you don't choose right. So let me choose. So now you're proving to them and yourself in the world that you can choose and you have a God-given right to, because that's an individual right that we all have. Hey, I hope you are enjoying this episode right now. If you didn't know this already, our mission here at Unfiltered is to help people who have experienced narcissistic abuse understand the abuse they have experienced, support them through their healing journey, and to help them develop healthy relationships. We want to help as many people as possible, but the only way we can reach everyone is if you choose to share this episode. So if you have been getting value from our content, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with others. You could do this by sharing it with your online support groups, sending it to someone dealing with a narcissist, or even leaving a review. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the episode. When we're trying to overcome the powerlessness, today we have been talking about the first strategy you mentioned was maintaining rigid boundaries. The second one was challenge the idealist version the narcissist has portrayed to you. Third one was engage in empowering activities. Fourth one we just talked about, it was become focused on your future. So what is the final, the fifth one? The fifth one is a loaded potato. So I labeled it because this is my own personal recommendation as a therapist. I labeled it psychoanalyze yourself. So I know that going to therapies, you know, that's a, I don't want to say cliche because it's a very important part of the healing process, but it's not accessible to everyone. Right. So in order to maybe use some of the tools that therapists might otherwise teach you in therapy, I was just going to kind of go going, I was going to go over some ways to uh, incorporate psychoanalyzation in your own life and your own subconscious. Um, so the first token of that is self-compassion because there's a lack of it, right? That inner critic is enraged. It's, it's on point because now your inner critic is replacing the criticism you would have otherwise been getting from these narcissistic abusers. Um, so your inner critic is like amplified if you limit contact or cease contact with an abuser. Um, so you have to learn to pull in that self-compassion and that there are books out there. There's lots of literature on all this. And I don't think it's rocket science. I just think it takes a lot of mental um, acuity and commitment to understanding the concept and, and applying it to your daily thoughts, um, which can be exhausting, but I think it's well worth it. Um, and so forgiving yourself and, and pulling in the self-compassion, I think will 
limit that inner critic. It should, in essence, theoretically, and it will give you a different perspective on how you see yourself. Because if you start to be compassionate towards yourself, you're not going to be um, limiting yourself as much. You're not going to be looking to others for that validation and affirmation as much. You're going to be kind of soothing yourself and affirming yourself and validating yourself, right? Which is ultimately what everyone should do. Not that we should never look to other people for advice or, or consolation, but ultimately we want to be able to provide that to ourselves, especially when it comes to daily stuff um, that everyone, you know, confronts on a daily basis. Um, you know, the self, the, the accountability at which you hold yourself mirrors the, the level of accountability others have held you to. So, you know, people can get angry at themselves if they drop a glass and it breaks, right? Well, accidents happen, but if you have a high inner critic and you've been held to a level of accountability by a narcissist, um, you're going to berate yourself for something so basic and so accidental and it could carry on with you for days, perhaps. So, so reminding yourself, wait, everybody drops things. I'm not the only one. It was a complete accident. It wasn't that big of a deal. I cleaned it up. No one got hurt. You know, all these ways you can kind of learn to soothe yourself and, and bring in that compassionate side. And I know this has been said before, but how would you treat a friend who did the same thing, right? Or a family member, someone you love, would you berate them the same way you're berating yourself? Well, the answer is probably no, but if it is no, then you should definitely really be thinking about your level of compassion for yourself. Because if you don't have it for yourself, how are you going to have it for anyone else? I mean, really, this is why narcissists lack empathy, right? Because they, they're, they're super critical on themselves. So they have no, they have no empathy to give anyone else because they can't even give it to themselves. So I think that that's, we don't, we don't, not that we're at risk of turning into a narcissist as a result, but that's definitely an aspect of our, ourselves, empathy that we do lose if we don't kind of practice it, so to speak, um, or, or reignite it, um, once we've lost it. So, um, <clears throat> Another part of psychoanalyzing yourself is, as said before, knowing your vulnerabilities. So limitations, vulnerabilities, they're kind of all the same thing. But when somebody acts out behaviorally or emotionally, I always make sure they're aware of what vulnerabilities are going on in their lives um, during that moment. So if you're having a bad day, maybe your dog is sick, maybe your family member is sick. I mean, maybe you got into a car accident, who knows? But you have to constantly take inventory of what situations are happening in your life that are contributing to poor emotional regulation or short temper or um, self-anger or lack of self-compassion, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just constantly being aware of what your vulnerabilities are because you want ultimately the self-preservation to kick in. So that fight, flight, or freeze response, right? Hopefully not fight, but some of us have that in us, but to a point that we just get a little bit of that anger and that uh, willingness to protect ourselves versus acting out, right? So knowing our vulnerabilities, um, be curious as to who you really are. That kind of goes back to the, the focus, the future focused um, and the empower, engaging in empowering activities, because that's all of those things are going to help teach you who you really are. Um, again, you know, the, the attention hasn't been on you. The attention's been on other people, right? Or person. So you have to know how to pull that attention back to you and um, kind of like get to know yourself. That's why I advocate for those solo trips because you have all the time in the world to kind of get to know you better and, and figure out those little nuances about what you like, what you prefer. Do you like seafood? Do you like Mexican food? You know, like what do you 
want in life and what, what, what's your likes and dislikes. Um, so, so kind of romancing yourself in a way, I guess, but you know, people do, they, they go on spa days by themselves or they go to the movies. These are all really good ways to practice autonomy, limiting that level of codependency and that need for validation and that dopamine rush from outside sources. You're providing those things to yourself. Um, notice triggers. So shame and guilt, going back to that. So vulnerabilities and triggers different. Vulnerabilities are what's happening in your life and within you and triggers are external factors that spark something within you. Right. So, but the, the shame and guilt that surround those triggers are the most often are most often caused by the types of abuse that, you know, narcissists present with. So being aware of those triggers and that resulting shame or guilt because it overrides so much. Like I get clients who say, oh, I just have really bad anxiety. You know, I'll be at a, a social gathering and I'll say something and I'll toss and turn all night wondering if that person judged me. And I just think that's shame. That's guilt and shame. And that's not necessarily social anxiety. That could be engendered in that person from way back when, or maybe something more recent. But either way, it doesn't mean like that person's just nervous around people. It means something happened in your life where you hold yourself at a very high accountability and you easily feel shameful over things that you probably otherwise shouldn't. Um, so just being really aware of when shame and guilt is triggered because you have to know that root cause comes from something outside of you. It didn't start with you. And, and so hopefully that brings that self-compassion into, so you kind of ground yourself in that moment to realize, oh, I'm doing that again. I'm holding myself really accountable. Why? Oh, that's why. Because you, you know these are going to be repetitive sorts of things, but it's going to take a long time to re reprogram and create those neural pathways that give you a new perspective on it. Right. So it's constantly reminding yourself of that in order to make that happen. Um, the inner child, there's a lot of literature on this too, but that inner critic is ultimately the inner parent and you're the victim of that. And that, that, that victim is typically you as a child, um, because you do regress to a, a stage of development much younger than what you are, uh, developmentally and biologically, when you feel those moments of shame and guilt rush over you and you, you know, become a doormat again, or you beat yourself up over something. Um, so really knowing when that inner critic or inner parent is berating your inner child and learning to nurture that inner child, because that inner child exists in all of us. But some of it's, some of us have a dormant inner child because we've, we've reconciled, like we've grown past that inner child, but some of us still have it thriving within us and it's constantly being brought up. Um, and that's why you do see people have regressive behaviors, like maybe they throw tantrums or maybe they throw objects or, you know, scream and shout because that's how a child would respond to those sorts of things. But not because they're quote unquote, you know, immature or childlike, but because they have somehow regressed due to some sort of trigger present that has made them feel inferior um, and like a child again. Um, recognize your core beliefs. So Every client I get, I want to go over how, like positive and negatives. Give me adjectives to describe how you see yourself, both positively and negatively. And ultimately that reveals their core beliefs, right? And then we have to dissect where these core beliefs come from. Like the, the positive ones are great and I don't necessarily need to know where those come from, although it'd be interesting, but more so the negative because those are what we rely on and those also contribute to that shame and guilt. So if you haven't taken inventory of your core beliefs, you probably should um, because they're very subconscious and insidious, but they permeate our thoughts and our, our self-image in all aspects. Um, 
understanding attachment style, which is a whole podcast in itself, I'm sure. But again, there's lots of self-help books or literature that people can access with that information. But if you understand your attachment style, you therefore understand what sorts of partners you gravitate towards or how you interact in your relationships generally. So having that knowledge and awareness is really empowering because then you can kind of see why certain things are the way they are. Typically someone that has been through narcissistic or psychological abuse has an anxious attachment style or a combination of anxious and avoidant. And there's a couple other categories, but those are the most predominant. Um, And so without going into that further, just knowing what attachment style you have can be very empowering. Um, And then assess your boundaries. So plain, plain and simple. I mean, know what, in what ways you violate boundaries of your own and others and reassess how you might change that. So you um, protect yourself more and you, you say no more and you, you, you know, you lived, you live to your life the way you would like to live it outside of what other people dictate. Yeah. Thank you. So this for, uh, fifth strategy in order to overcome powerlessness, uh, there was a lot of stuff. Thank you. I'm just gonna kind of summarize and uh, see if if um, if anything else comes up to your mind or if I even understood you correctly. So uh, to psychoanalyze yourself, you gave many tips. One was like practice self-compassion. Like that's really important one. And that basically is try to give yourself advice or comfort that you would give to a friend in a similar situation. And then also you said that know your vulnerabilities and limitations, and especially when you act out emotionally. So those are great moments to really kind of look at like what contributed to this, like what are my vulnerabilities and limitations? And you said these are like more of like internal things um, and compared to triggers, those were like external factors and often relate to shame and guilt and also uh, become aware of your triggers what usually gets you triggered and are, are they linked to shame and guilt in some way and then he, you said like be really curious about who you really are uh, that's a really important factor and then you said recognize your core beliefs so how do you see yourself positively and negatively and then also get curious about those negative core beliefs like try to think why they are there and how they developed in the first place so you can start to address them and then you said understand your attachment styles that can give you a lot of insight into yourself and then you said to assess your boundaries thing so think about how do you violate your own personal boundaries and perhaps how do you violate others boundaries as well so all this is under the psychoanalyze yourself strategy which is which was the final strategy uh, when we are trying to overcome the powerlessness that narcissistic abuse causes okay why why should we you know focus on this one why should we psychoanalyze ourselves how does this um help us to overcome the powerlessness so any one of those strategies en- enveloped in the psychoanalyze yourself title um can be helpful right so it's not like it's a, a, pa- a package deal but I would say it's important because it, it, that a self going back to the initial thing, being aware, if we don't have awareness, we'll never change. So getting to know ourselves in an intimate way that again, as a victim of abuse or, or survivor of abuse 
is a foreign concept to us. So as if we're practicing intimately knowing ourselves in any way, shape or form, I think that's still major progress because it's just not something that's going to be uh, second nature to us right away. Mm, okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. So today we went through and you provided five different strategies to overcome the powerlessness. First one was maintain rigid boundaries. Second one was challenge the idealist version the, the narcissist has portrayed to you. Third one was engage in empowering activities. Fourth one was become focused on your future. And fifth one was psychoanalyze yourself. All these were really great. Thank you so much and very detailed. Do you have anything to add or any final thoughts about the, any of these five strategies or the topic of overcoming the powerlessness in general? Yeah, um, I would say just keep in mind that no matter what abuser you have in your life, that person ultimately has to change, has to want to change. Nothing you ever say or do or wish for or pray for um, or work towards is going to make that person change one iota. And I think that's a constant hope that I hear that word hope a lot with my clients. Oh, I just hope this. I hope that. Well, hopes for the birds. I don't rely on hope. I rely on evidence and evidence is based in someone's behavior. So even if they're nice once in a while, or they do something considerate, or they give me a compliment, but then the rest of the time, they're just nasty jerks. Uh, when somebody shows you who they are the first time, believe them. Because a person that's going to abuse you is never going to resort to name calling or ridiculing or criticizing. Um, there might be moments of that in a long-term relationship, perhaps. But it's never going to be consistent with someone that's just naturally not an abusive person. So if someone shows you that's who they are, that's who you should believe they are. Not this like false sense of self that they project and portray to you. Um, and that's one of the psycho effects of psychological trauma is our difficulty in deciphering what's real and what's not right. So they've already got us in that way. So just reminding yourself that this, this, if you're going to be in the relationship in whatever capacity with this abuser, then this is how it's going to look forever. And you just have to accept that if that's something you're willing to accept, I can't change that. No one can only you can, but don't expect it to change for the better. I hope you enjoyed that episode and maybe you are going to listen to it a couple more times if you are planning on using Jessica's advice, which I hope you do. Before I let you go, I would like to invite you to join our free community. My team and I send out free courses and healing exercises every week. We also host live therapist-led Q&A sessions every month that are 100% free. To join, please click the link in the podcast notes or visit unfiltered.net slash community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'll catch you in the next one.